It is still difficult for me to preach through an entire book, but we're going we're gonna to make it work. Announcing the messianic king and his kingdom. Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, the, the messianic profile of Jesus can be broadly organized around three Old Testament figures. In the beginning of Matthew's gospel, in the genealogy, he only mentions two of them, David and Abraham. Jesus is the son of David, and Jesus is the son of Abraham. But in Matthew 1.17, the author adds an important event after these two names. And so he, as he neatly uh, organizes the genealogy of Jesus, and he does them in 14 generation increments. He says, thus, the total number of generations from Abraham to David is 14 generations from David to Babylonian exile, 14 generations, and from Babylonian exile to the Messiah, 14 generations. And so what he adds then to this is there's Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. And then he raises this event, this exile, this return from exile language. And if you know a little bit about return from exile language, particularly in the book of Isaiah, then sometimes the return from exile is pictured in Isaiah's prophecy as a new exodus, if you will. Isaiah 43 16 to 19 says, thus says the Lord who opens a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who led out chariots and horsemen, a powerful army till they lie prostrate together, never to rise, snuffed out, quenched like a wick. Remember not the events of the past, the things of long ago. Consider not. See, I'm doing something new. I, now it springs forth. Do not perceive it. I am going to make a way in the wilderness. And so Isaiah has this, this imagery and this language where he begins to talk about the return from exile as an exodus. And when we think of a figure that is associated with the exodus, we ought to think about Moses. So there's two that are explicit. It is Jesus, the son of Abraham, Jesus, the son of David. And then implicit in the return from exile language is this Moses figure. It'll be, it'll, uh, be presented in that way in a very uh, kind of organized fashion. So after... After the genealogy, we start to see very clearly that Jesus' life looks like Moses. Right? He is uh, sent to Egypt to be saved. He has to uh, circumvent this massacre of children. Uh, Jesus will go up to a mountain to give his law, just as Moses goes up to the mountain, just as Moses fasts 40 days. 
and 40 nights. Jesus will fast 40 days and 40 nights. And so these figures then are shaping uh, Matthew's portrait of the messianic savior. Jesus is a Moses-like figure. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. And I want to take these three elements embedded in Matthew's genealogical account and to show how Matthew announces the king, the the messianic king in his kingdom. Are y'all ready to go with me? All right. So there's some interesting things that happens in regards to how this imagery is laid out. So remember, Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of David. And Jesus is this figure, the messianic figure that will bring hope to the exiles. And it's interesting how Um, We leave from chapter one, that framework, and then we come into chapter two, where Jesus is born and is announced as the king of the Jews. We'll come back to that in a minute, but it's, it's a very interesting thing. And I want to, I want to kind of skip around a little bit because in chapter two, um, Jesus is born and you have uh, these magi that come from the east who want to worship him, who is born the king of the Jews. This creates this challenge uh, with Herod, who's an Idumean and who has been uh, nicknamed the king of the Jews. And it starts this infanticide. It starts this massacre of, of children. And it's very interesting how uh, Matthew connects that Moses-like story to exile. He raises a question or he raises a, an allusion to Matthew 2 in Matthew 2, 17 and 18. And he says, after uh, the, 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 the babies are being killed under two, it says, a voice was heard in Ramah, sobbing in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she would not be consoled since they were no more. And it's a very enigmatic statement. Why does, why does Matthew put this little verse in there that's, that's from Jeremiah. Why, why does he do it? In the context in Jeremiah is that it is exile. And it's, it has uh, personified Rachel, uh, this, this uh, matriarch, if you will, this matriarch in a very heroic and intercessory uh, role. She is crying and she will not be consoled. She's weeping for her children. If you know something about Rachel's story, Rachel has two sons and she has Joseph and then she has Benjamin and she dies in giving birth to him. And if you're trying to think about, well, when, when in Rachel's story would she ever weep for her children because Rachel is dead? But you realize then that Joseph 
in some ways goes through a exile of his own. Joseph is being oppressed. Joseph has been sold into slavery. Joseph her, 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 her boy, her, her, her baby boy, and, and, and uh, he, he's, he's dealing with this, this situation, and he's exiled from the land, and he's exiled from his family and his people, and she's weeping. The interesting thing is, is that in Jeremiah, obviously, Rachel is long gone. She's dead. But Jeremiah says that she's weeping. And there's this iteration of this, this repetition of events where, where Israel's story is replete with mourning and sadness. Israel's story is replete with lamentation so that Rachel is weeping and she will not be consoled. Because some tears can't dry up so easily. Some tears and some pain don't just go away with time. I'm sorry, it's not true. Time does not heal all wounds. What's going on with Rachel is she's going to need a hero. She's going to need Someone who can console Rachel. Rachel is weeping and she will not be consoled. And then the massacre of impets happens again. And, and Matthew says this is uh, what Jeremiah talked about. Rachel is weeping. And it is to put us in the context of why the messianic savior is to come. Why um, Israel needs her king? Because she goes from, from uh, Egyptian uh, slavery and she's going and there's all kinds of other things that's going to Philistines and then uh, Babylonians and Assyrians and Persians and now the Romans. And in this case, even Herod, who's supposed to be Jewish, right? He's supposed to, like, it's, there is a need for his kingship and his kingdom. This is the question uh, that Matthew's gospel begins to wrestle with. What is the significance of this king? Because in his kingship, in his kingdom, there is peace. In his kingdom, there is a righting of wrongs. In his kingdom, justice will be served. We need a king. And she won't be consoled. Interesting, Matthew leaves out a very uh, interesting thing in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, after it says that she won't be consoled, it says, thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping. And he's, he's going to give her some things about the messianic hope. Um, he says, restrain your voices from weeping and your eyes from your tears. And watch this, for your work will be rewarded. It is, it is a tremendous thing. Rachel is considered as an intercessory matriarch. Like she, her, what is her work? Her tears. She 
Christ. He won't be consoled until the hope of Israel comes. In her lamenting, she's doing work. And Yahweh says, your work will be rewarded. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded. And he will begin to lay out this return from exile. And in Matthew's gospel, uh, Matthew says, now it is happening. Now you can dry your tears. Now you can wipe your eyes because the messianic king has come. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord, that that in Jesus is our hope. In Jesus is the fulfillment of of the promises to Israel. We can now have joy because the king has come. And so he begins to wrestle and to, to weave these themes together. And that's the exile element. The kingdom of God is, has provisions for Israel's pain. That's the return from exile. I need you to understand that, that we serve a living God, that we serve a king whose jurisdiction is relevant, whose reign is practical. We come to him as our living hope. He has provisions for our pain. Somebody talk back to me, y'all. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. So, 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 so the, there's this exile element. But then when we look at the son of David, we find that the kingdom is, does not only have provisions for our pain, but the kingdom comes with certain provocations. There is this provocative nature about the kingdom of God, and it is intimated in the profile that Jesus is the son of David. See, we have to understand, uh, Matthew like John, we often talk about John as having double entendre. He, he will use words with double meaning, but Matthew does it too. And for Matthew, the son of David has multiple implications. On one level, the son of David means the descendant of David. It is the quintessential descendant of David, the one who would sit on, on David's throne. He is the messianic king. But it's interesting to see how this element of son of David, that profile is developed in Second Temple Judaism. Um, on a very literal level, in regards, in regards to redemption history, the son of David is not just the descendant of David. The son of David is Solomon, the quintessential son. And it's interesting, this term son of David is primarily a Matthean term. Luke and Mark only uses the term three times each, but Matthew uses the term 10 times. And only one out of the 10 times, does, it doesn't refer to Jesus, it refers to Joseph. But this is essentially a Matthean term. And what's interesting about Matthew's use of the term is that it seems to carry with it the double entendre that I, that I mentioned. That I mentioned. 
And as we, um, not just the, as the messianic figure who would sit on David's throne, but there is this Solomonic profile that comes with Jesus being the son of David. Here's interesting about how Solomon, as the son of David, is dealt with in Second Temple Judaism. Testament of Solomon, uh, uh, chapter 1, line 17 uh, talks about that. That's not in our canon, but we can use it for historical information. Uh, Testament of Solomon says Solomon is explicitly referred to as the son of David, and in his role, he can control demons. And this is not lost on Jewish uh, on Jewish readers because it's not just in Solomon, but in Josephus. And Josephus Antiquities, chapter 8, 45 to 49, speaks of Solomon as an exorcist. And so there is this, this milieu that is developing around the son of David profile, particularly as it relates to Solomon, as one who has control over demons. And so it's very interesting that Matthew, who uses this term nine times to refer to Jesus, often uses it to refer to his role as an exorcist. First people um, to refer to him as a son of David is not every time are blind people. And, and uh, they, they're passing, he's passing on the road. They say, have mercy on the son of David. But watch this, it creates this domino effect. So uh, Matthew 9, 31, but they went out and spread the news about him and all that in that land. And as they were going out, behold, uh, demon possessed people were brought to him. Here's another passage. Matthew 12, 21 and 24, and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Then there was brought to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb, and he healed him so that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and began to say, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? And you start to see this association with when people call him the son of David in Matthew's term, it's often associated with his role as exorcist. He's looking like this Solomonic figure. Matthew 15, 22, behold, a Canaanite woman came out from that region and began to cry out to him saying, have mercy, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is cruelly demon possessed. What does all this mean for the kingdom's provocations, the provocative nature? It's in some ways saying a very important dynamic. Important very, uh, element. In this time, one of the great, there are three great enemies of humanity. Demons, death, and disease. When the Messiah comes, he comes saying that he has power and authority over all of and particularly in regards to the, the demonic aspect, you get a picture of there's a heightened level of oppression that, that, that Israel's, that Israel's uh, oppression is not just merely social in, in regards to uh, relationships within society, it is also spiritual. And there's something very provocative then. The emergence of the kingdom of God automatically entails the eviction of Satan in his kingdom. 
This is why in Mark's gospel, the first miracle that Jesus does after he announces the kingdom of God is cast out a demon. To say that the kingdom of God is here is to say, Satan, your work is finished. For, for, for Jesus' reign to come means that there's an eviction notice. There's a new sheriff in town. Oh, blessed be the name. You, 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 ever, you, ever, you ever seen those signs? Some of y'all are maybe too young, but you, you ever see those signs where you, you go past a business and it will say, under new management? Yeah, and that's what happens in the coming of Jesus. That's what happens. You Listen, it's under new management. Satan's territory is being impeded upon. He no longer has his uh, dominion for the king has come. And it's, and it's important for us to, to, grasple, to grapple with this because it is not to deny. It is not to deny that Israel has very real uh, physical enemies, human enemies. We, we, we often quote this scripture, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities as if one negates the other. As if all of our problems are only merely spiritual forces. Even in Matthew's gospel, Jesus does not deny that you can have physical human enemies. He says the love them. So, so, um, and so it's important as we're wrestling with the kingdom of God because we're sometimes having questions. Oh, that's a social issue. The gospel does not have, I mean, this preached the gospel. Matthew says, it is the gospel. The gospel and the kingdom of God has implications for society. And what he does is he doesn't negate one. He just shows what's the quintessential evil behind it. The quintessential evil is not that, oh, these things that are happening and the, like the killing of babies as if that's not like uh, uh, something that Rachel should be weeping about. That's just a, that's just a spirit. You no, know, it's not a spiritual thing. That's a social thing. No, he said, no, listen, that behind this, behind these social evils is a quintessential evil. They don't negate one another, but we need to put it in perspective. So next time we're having questions about whether something is a social issue or not, think about that. Racism is not just a socialism. It is a a lie from the pit of hell. It's a demonic thing that has to be exercised. Sexism is not just a socialism, it's a classism. Those things are, are demonic forces. But with the coming of the king, all of that has to bow down to the messianic savior. And so it is provocative in nature. It it is to say that the world systems and even ourselves are under new management. Praise be to God. And you'll see this, this theme is developed throughout the New Testament. Paul, Apostle Paul echoes this when he says, he delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. First John 5, 19, we know that we belong to God and the whole world is under the power of the evil one. There is this, this juxtaposition between those who are under his power and those of us who belong to the king. I'm under new management. 
I have a new walk. I'm under new management. I, I have a new talk. I'm, I'm under new management. I have a new orientation for life. I'm under new management. My identity has been made over again. The community with which I identify has changed because I'm under new management. The coming of the kingdom of God means that I am a citizen of the heavenly city. I've been brought up from under the sovereign reign of, uh, brought up of the reign of spiritual forces, demonic forces, to now under the God king. I'm under new management. I'm under his jurisdiction. All things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. So we need to understand the provocative nature of the kingdom of God. And he, he, he intimates this by referring to him as the son of David. I got to get on out your way. He's not only this Moses-like figure that's, that's uh, uh, depicted in this return from exile, this new exodus. He's not only the son of David um, in in his Solomonic role, and I'll tell you this, Matthew goes a little bit further because Matthew is the only gospel that says, and something greater than Solomon is here. <laughs> yes, sir. But what says the kingdom, you not only have these kingdom provisions and that this, the provocative nature of the, of the kingdom, but you have the kingdom proportions, and that's intimated in this idea, this profile, that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Listen, the kingdom proportions. It deals with the magnitude or the dimensions of Jesus's kingship. On one hand, to say that he is the son of Abraham, it means that it heightens Jesus's Jewish ancestry. It reminds his readers of the ancestral covenant with Abraham from which their people originated. On the other hand, though, Abraham also represents the inclusiveness and the universality of the Old Testament hope. Through him, the Old Testament says, uh, through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 12 and 3. This is a promise that finds its resonances in Matthew's gospel. In that vein, it's not by chance that the first people to hail Jesus as king in Matthew's gospels are Gentiles. The Magi from the east arrive in Jerusalem saying, we saw his star in the east. Where is he who is born king of the Jews? You think about that. Typically, babies are not born, even if they are royal, are not born as kings. They're typically born as a prince, a son, right? But he, Jesus, is born king. And so you start to see these resonances. Um, it's not only in chapter two, but in chapter one, Jesus' genealogy includes five women and several of whom um, are Gentiles. Rahab, Gentile. Ruth, the Moabite, Gentile. Bathsheba may also be a Gentile because Uriah is a Hittite. Matthew's gospel, only two people are qualified as having great faith. Both of them are Gentiles. There's only two people in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, you have great faith. One is the centurion in Matthew 8, Matthew 8 and the other is, very ironically, a Canaanite woman. Both of them have 
Abraham's faith. All of this speaks to the fact that while he is crucified at the end of the gospel, um, um, as the king of the Jews, he's not just the king of the Jews. The proportions of the messianic kingdom encompasses the nation. His jurisdiction is not limited to Judaism. The scope of his kingship is of every nation and every tongue. Because of his kingship, demons tremble. Because of his kingship, earthly kings are intimidated. His kingdom knows no bounds. His reign has no limits. His crown has no expiration date. He is ironically held as the king of the Jews at the end of the life, but worshiped as the king, as a baby at the beginning of his life. He comes into this world and it is Gentiles that first recognize him as king. As the son of Abraham and the messianic king, Jesus embodies the promises, the promised proportions of Abrahamic blessing. This is why the gospel of Matthew ends with, and Jesus came up and spoke to them and saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations. He is the king of kings. That is to be uh, held as such in every nation. He is the atoning king. For he who knew no sin became a sin offering that we might become the righteousness of God. He is the crucified king because he died on a hill called Calvary. He is the risen king because on the third day, on the first day of the week, he got up with all authority in his hands. He is the reigning king because he sits on the right hand of the father and no one can dethrone him. He's at the right hand in heavenly places. He is the coming king. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who fall fallen asleep. For the Lord himself We descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. Then we who are alive and who remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord. He is the coming king, and one day he will be the undisputed king. For there will come a day that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. And watch this, whether you want to or not. So all hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall, bring forth the royal diadem and crown him. I said crown him, Lord of all. Oh, when the saints go marching in. I want to be in that number when they crown him Lord of all. He is our king. Praise be to God. Thank you, Father, for your kingship and kingdom. Nothing is outside of your jurisdiction. There is absolutely nothing in our lives that's outside of your jurisdiction. You have the power. Lord, we submit to your kingship. We celebrate your kingship. Help us to think on these things. Go in peace.